turn in your Bible to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. Oh good, the sun's right in my eye. It'll move. (laughs) It will move, I, I promise. Okay. You know, friends, I think it's probably uh, without saying that I don't hesitate to, I'm going to stand over here for a minute, to, no I'm not, I'm going to stand over there for a minute. Uh, I don't shrink away from theological controversy, but there are times that I think uh, men have fought so many theological battles that all they know how to do is be in battle mode, to argue, uh, debate, Topics instead of just rejoicing in the fact that God is infinitely above what we could ask or think in so many different ways. And one of the ways that I see that manifested uh, in the past several weeks just in pastoral ministry is there's this conversation about when the Bible has, uh, let's say in the Psalms, since we're there, uh, an expression about um, a particular topic does it only mean what it means in the near context of that um, psalm? Or are there further spiritual implications of the text beyond what the writer could have imagined at the time that they wrote it? Now that's a big question. But I, I, and what's so befuddling to me is some brothers that I would agree with on so many Uh, fronts and who I would fight with and so many theological fights would answer that question with absolutely no. Uh, It only means one thing and that's it. Uh, There is no way uh, that we come to Scripture and, and believe that all of the original writers understood the full import of everything that they were writing. 
Uh, There's no way that in Genesis there was a complete understanding of everything that was to come after. Uh, One of the the arguments that I've listened to recently, and now I'm diving neck deep into a rabbit trail, uh, but was this conversation about the fact that we should not speak of the Bible in terms of progressive, progressive revelation, but in terms of cumulative revelation. And, and the reason that I find that helpful is this. Uh, now, progressive revelation is a good idea. The unfolding of the story throughout time. And we've all heard that term. But the critique that's subtle is this, and you don't have to buy, buy into it, but is this. That progressive can leave in the minds of some moderns the idea that somehow the, the, the later works of the Bible, the Gospels, the pastoral letters, somehow contain greater truth than the first book of the Bible, than Genesis. And we would say no to that. We would say cumulatively, all of the Word of God has expression uh, of, of the truth. That just because there was not a complete full-orbed, there's that son again, understanding of, uh, of everything throughout Scripture to Moses as he wrote Genesis, he understood uh, what God had revealed to him, and that is as true today as it was when Moses wrote it. Uh, which I think is absolutely true. So there's, there's constant contrasts throughout the Bible. And uh, that's certainly true when we come, I think, to Psalm 137. And I, I want you to hear me. Uh, and I'm going to say this again, but we don't have to allegorize this text to see the spiritual reality that what the psalmist is writing about, in one sense, is a very near Jerusalem and a very near Babylon, but those things typify a greater reality in our day. Uh, the, the Babylon of the world around us. When I was in youth ministry, I remember reading an article called Raising Daniel in Babylon. Now, the idea wasn't that we would somehow raise a modern child named Babylon or named da- Daniel in a literal sense, in uh, Babylon in a literal sense. The idea was that we have to raise our children in a world that is fallen. And so there is a, a literal and a figurative import. Um, really, we find this uh, distinction in St. Augustine's work, The City of God. There is a very influential work. If you know Augustine, uh, he, he wrote this book, and it, for most of the Middle Ages, was one of the most influential uh, pieces of literature. And in that work, he aims to describe these two realities of two cities that have been formed by uh, two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. And that typifies one group of people. And then the heavenly by the love of God, that is the people of God who have love for God even to the contempt of themselves. And so we see in Augustine's writing uh, the idea that there is some figurative import that we benefit from in Scripture. Now again, that doesn't mean that we have to dive neck deep into allegorizing everything that we find in Scripture. What we do find is this warring reality in Psalm 137. If we're going to relate to it rightly, I think that we have to admit uh, that there is a, a, a grand meaning here for the church 
as much as for the original author as they lamented the reality of the uh, Babylonian captivity in their own day. Um, Psalm 137 is a, is a very powerful psalm of lament. It's a psalm that cries out in the face of the agony that the people of God experienced in their time um, of captivity. But that doesn't mean that it's not a beautiful psalm. Just because it's a psalm of lament doesn't mean that it's only dark, that it's only uh, difficult, and that it only contains themes that are weighty. Uh, It is an incredibly moving psalm. Derek Kinder wrote, Every line of this psalm is alive with pain whose intensity grows with each stanza to an appalling climax. There is this, this gravitas that we have to deal with in this text. And as we read through it, remember to bear in mind, yes, there is a very, uh, uh, very near contextual meaning to the life of Israel, and we have to see that to, to relate to it appropriately, but there is also an application to us. So if you would do honor with that in mind to the reading of God's Word and stand tonight as we read these words inspired by the Spirit of Almighty God. By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung our lyres, our harps. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If we forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand, excuse me, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, Lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of God to you and I tonight. Let us pray. Father God, we come into your presence tonight. Thankful for the instruction that this psalm gives us in our own life together here. Uh, We are thankful for the reminder of what it means to worship you and, Father, to worship you in the context of a world that is fallen uh, in light of a world that is captive to sin. Uh, But we thank you for this place that we're able to come and to sing praises to your name until we are gathered home together with you. Would you bless this time as we gather around this psalm that is so weighty in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So we begin here looking at this opening stanza. Here the Jews have returned from exile and they're recalling the moments that they were setting by the canals, the rivers of Babylon. 
And they were far from the mountain and we've gone through the Psalms of Ascent. We've gone through this coming home and of course it's just one argument that the Psalms of Ascent are, are a post-exilic return set of Psalms. I, I think that's probably right. Um, but here we find the psalmist crying out and remembering those difficult days, those sad days. And, and here the psalmist speaks kind of in effect and says... We were asked to sing about Zion, but how could we sing? How could we, how could we pour our hearts out to the Lord when we were setting under the harsh captivity of evil men? How could we really have an atmosphere of joy in that place? There, there is this sense in which the psalmist is conveying to us this question of how can the people of God rightly worship amongst the heathen, amongst nations that are fallen and do not find their joy in the Lord. And there's a kind of subtle, nuanced answer coming from the psalmist that is to be joyful away from Jerusalem, away from the people of God and the temple. You have to remember that the temple was uh, prescribed by God and all of the sacrifices there were prescribed for the right worship of God. And so part of what you have to see in this text, if we're going to import the meaning to our own generation, is this. How can we rightly worship when all of the instruments that God has given us have been thrown down? Have been utterly destroyed? We, we live in light of the reality that we worship or should worship in all places at all times in our lives. We're not bound just to the temple, but we need to remember that this was the place that God had prescribed for His people to worship in accordance with His Word. And the psalmist is crying out, we're not going to do this any other way than the way that God prescribed it for us. We're not going to just make an outward expression that means nothing internally. We're not going to be involved in that. Here, there are summaries of just the sadness and the anguish. And, and I've told you that <clears throat> these next 15 or beginning with Psalm 135 forward are Psalms teaching us how to worship rightly. And really, Psalm 135 or 137 comes to us and you kind of can read it and go, well, somebody forgot to give the dude that wrote this the note. Because this doesn't seem to instruct us in our worship. But beloved, I promise you that's not the right attitude to have towards this psalm. It does. It, it sets us in the world in which we live of people who want to come in and they want to be encouraged. The, 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 the psalmist captors, the people that didn't know God, they didn't say we don't care about your ability to perform what looks like a worship service. They wanted to experience, sing us a song, amuse us. Friends, I would say that that cry is really the heart attitude, and I mean this with deference, of many people who call themselves worship leaders today. It is nothing more than outwardly, let's do something amusing. But it does not have at the heart an ethic of genuine worship to the living God in a way that He alone has prescribed. It's nothing more than a show. 
And here, the psalmist is saying, how dare we engage in that? Can't. I'm not going to. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? Which again, if we go back to, I don't want to belabor this point, but I'm going to a little bit. Get it drilled down in your head. When we, when we go to the book of Ruth and we see Elimelech taking his family away from uh, Jerusalem and away from Israel, I believe that it's a right interpretation to see that move as sin because God had at that time prescribed for His people that He was going to provide for them in the land. But what was the problem in Ruth? Uh, the setting. It was that, 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 that Israel itself was neck deep in sin and rebellion and doing life, as Judges says, in accordance with uh, everybody did what was right in their own sight. I think that Psalm 137 could be accurately titled Worship in Light of What We Think is Right. That, that, is not, that is not the import of what the psalmist wants, but it is the import of what the Babylonian captors desire. Sing us a song. Do this. And the psalmist says, no, I think you get it. But here we see three things that help us to really relate to the psalm better. We don't want to just understand with our mind the psalms. We also want to understand with our heart what is being communicated, communicated here. And one, I think, truth that escapes us without seeing under the, the English translation is that this is a very sad Psalm. It's a psalm of someone who wants to worship rightly, but is remembering a time when because the, the things of God had been thrown down, they weren't able to rightly. And, and under the uh, English language is the pronoun repeated th- nine times uh, that ends in new, meaning we or are. And, and if we understood, and I'm not going to go through all of it tonight, Hebrew well, we would understand that this psalm has repeated nine times this pronoun that leaves you with a sense of, oh, woe. Woe is me. It is a difficult time in which we lived. It, this is a hard truth that we remember. And really, you can sense that without having an understanding of the Hebrew language as you just compare Psalms 135 and 136 with Psalm 137. If we remember quickly in Psalm 135, begins with praise the Lord for the name of the Lord. Praise the, yeah, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants, of the Lord. And in Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. But then verse, uh, Psalm 137 just begins, just in the first verse, by the waters of Babylon. In our captivity, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. We remembered everything that God had given us to worship rightly, and it had all been torn down in light of the sin of our nation and the judgment that God had sent upon our nation. And so we see juxtaposed this psalm that ends in a really weighty imprecation with 
the other psalms throughout the Psalter that just encourage us to sing praises to the Lord that are lighter and encouraging and you don't have to kind of work through them to understand as much. You just, you're just blessed by them. I think of Psalm 84. Uh, this, the psalmist says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. That's a, that's a joyful encouragement. It's better to be among the people of God and have the lowest position there than it is to be among the heathen and to, to experience outward uh, pleasures of, of, of wickedness in, in that sense. And so there's this juxtaposition that I want you to feel the weight of this, this psalm. And again, we don't need to allegorize the, the text to feel that uh, the import of the meaning. We, we don't need to make this uh, merely an allegory to, to, to understand it. We can read it as first and primarily having a very real-world um, meaning to the Babylonian captivity, but then in light of our own day and age, we can see that we experience, and I believe, beloved, we are experiencing now, uh, a chastising of God if we were to consider what it meant to worship in, in the past, and then we take a survey of what people think worship is in our day, I believe that what we would see is not um, the church growing in worship, but rather the ruins of what once was. Uh, we would see the reality... That so many people have come in and, and, and they've suggested in a way that just you can hear the subtle guile of Satan in their voice. Well, what difference does it make what we sing, Dallas? What difference does it make if we change the meaning of a song just a little bit to convey a truth that is just a little bit more comfortable to us even if we can't find it in the Bible? What impact will that really have among the people of God? And listen... If we want to have a good worship program in here, we better sing in a way that the, the fallen world outside the doors of the church can understand. Otherwise, people are going to get bored. They're going to leave the church. And we wouldn't want that to happen. So let's change everything. David, let's change everything about our worship and just, just sing to please men. Sing to us a song, the culture says. The problem is, in our generation, many pastors have not said, I won't do that. They've said, okay, fine, sounds good, let's do that. To the extent that I can have conversations with mature Christians about what biblical worship is, and the sad reality is we have been at this for so many generations now, and I don't want to undermine your trust in, in your personal time of worship or as we sing together corporately here, but we have gotten so used to a dumbed down form of worship that I don't think that we have at the core a desire to worship in a way, um, and I mean this cumulatively, I'm not picking on anybody in this room, uh, I, I believe the Christian church in America today has lost its mind when it comes to, to worship to the extent that we don't even see that it has been torn down in so many ways. I mean, there are entire 
music paradigms that I think I've come through and listened to and, and really thought at one time, boy, this is so good. And God in His providence uses crooked sticks to strike straight blows. But I, as I look back, I realize there are so many veins of Christian music that are about one thing, and it's not the glory of God. It's putting money into executive, uh, executives' pockets. And friends, that, it's not a light thing. To take the glory of God and the worship of God and turn it into just merely a business. Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, he said this. And and if Spurgeon was lamenting this reality in his day, that should wake us up. Even thus, do, do true believers mourn the way in Psalm 137, when we see the church despoiled and find themselves unable to nurse the church, we could bear anything better than this. In these our times, the Babylon of error ravages the city of God, and the hearts of the failure are grievously wounded as they see Truth fallen in the streets and unbelief rampant among professed servants of the Lord. Spurgeon is saying is that it grieves the people of God who are genuinely seeking to worship Him in spirit and in truth when all they see is a group of people come together to sing songs in a way that pleases their flesh but doesn't really exalt the living God and isn't in accordance with with His Word. Now, if I was to leave you here tonight, you would think, well, that was the worst. Uh, that's just a despairing hymn. I'm, I'm going to read Psalm 136, and then I'm going to head straight for 138 the next time I'm working through my Psalter. But friends, we don't have to despair. Uh, we don't have to um, live in a way that that, that just stays in this, this place of, of recognizing that there's wrong motives in our worship. Rather, we can take the cue of this psalm and, to de- and determine to do what the psalmist did here. Look uh, with me at verse 5. No. Excuse me. At verse 2, on the willows, there we hung our lyres. What is being said there is when the world around us begged us, invited us to merely play a tune that would impress them in their flesh, we determined we wouldn't do it. Instead, now, now listen, verse 2 is, I think, an incredible encouragement in a weighty, dark psalm. Because what is being said is we recognized that this was a wrong way to worship, and so we didn't do it. But the psalmist at times uses language of breaking their harps, of saying, we're not going to worship ever again. But in this psalm, what is said is we didn't break our harps. We didn't break the instruments. We didn't say we're never going to do this again. We just said we're not going to do it this way. And in a way that is not pleasing to God. And so he, the, the imagery here of hanging the harp up is there are days, friends, where we should refrain 
from worshiping in a way that displeases God. Uh, We shouldn't join in with people in false forms of worship merely to keep everyone happy. We also have to see the reality in that second verse that throughout our lifetimes, there are going to come days that are hard. Providentially, in the life of Israel, these were hard times. They're setting and remembering times that they were in captivity, a consequence of their own sin. And in those days, it was beyond just merely a cheer up. It was beyond just sing me a little dirge and it'll all be okay. And I think that when the church gets music and and worship together as a body right, what you will find is variation and an understanding that there's a time to sing and there's a time to refrain from that. There's a time to just be still and to weep with those who weep. But do you know, in the modern church movement, is it not interesting that there's really no variation in what happens on Sunday morning? It all sounds like a rock concert. It's all happy-go-lucky, cheer up, better days are ahead, it's okay, kumbaya. It's all one kind of presentation of what life is like. And the Bible just doesn't speak in those terms. There are Psalms that lead us to the heights of joy, but there are also, well, hello, Andrew's family. Um, There are also uh, Psalms of lament, like we find here, that there is movement to the reality that life is not all static, it's not all one way. And so the psalmist here says, We're hanging up the harp. And then he moves in the direction of saying this, if I forget heaven, if I forget Jerusalem in the near meaning, if I forget that context, I wish that my right hand would forget all that it's learned. I've watched as musicians in my own home have grown to, I'm so thankful that children are built with uh, an ability in some sense if you teach them to practice their music that they progress. Because if I was stuck with my children the way that they played piano the very first week that they played piano, oh my. Uh, So thankful that uh, there's a growing in skill and that God has built our world in a way that you don't don't put your hands on an instrument generally. Some people are gifted in this way, but generally and, and have to memory everything that is there. It takes time. It takes practice. And what the psalmist is saying here. If I were to forget Jerusalem, if I were to forget the right worship of God, I wish that all of my talent were taken away. I wish that my tongue would stick to the roof of my mouth. That would make a very convenient way of of discerning as a litmus test whether or not someone was really worshiping in spirit and in truth. Like our tongues just stuck to the top of our mouth. I think music in American worship circles would sound really weird today Um, because that is the reality there are so many people who have forgotten that we're not singing just to please men in our own generation we are singing because we are headed to a city where God will dwell in our midst and as we gather together we should keep that ever in mind though we are in our own 
Babylon, in a sense, we should never forget where we are really worshiping, and that is before the throne of Almighty God. It is not merely before men. Here, the the psalmist changes his pronouns from the singular we, I, and instead he he pledges his personal loyalty to Jerusalem. I I think part of what we have to learn in this context is, friends, it's going to be difficult to worship rightly in a fallen world. There's going to constantly be People pushing you in this direction or that direction generally in accordance with the dictates of what they've been raised with and what their own flesh desires and what they subjectively feel is right. And there is a sense in which the psalmist, I think, is is collectively calling the people of God together to remember their shared suffering in a fallen world. And friends, we've got to understand that if we seek to, to worship God in spirit and in truth, that we are going to suffer in our own time and in our own generation. But it's interesting that although the suffering is shared, that the change in the pronouns here really important As he says, if I forget you, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I don't remember. And what we see there is that the commitment to worship rightly in spirit and in truth, although it happens corporately, it has to be an individual commitment. The church gets gets worship right when every individual determines, I want to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're not gathering just merely to outwardly perform. We are gathering to sing praises to God in a way that would bring glory to Him. So we have to ask ourselves, do we have that commitment? Are we? And the way that we know whether or not we have that commitment is, is in, in my view, is do we hold our own personal preferences lightly? And do we hold above those preferences a desire that God would be glorified? Friends, I don't particularly care for yodeling. I don't. But if God in His providence said, you know, yodeling would bring glory to my name, then let's figure it out. Let's do it. Now, may God be praised forever. There is a long conversation to have before I would arrive at the conclusion that that's actually what He wants. <laughs> but we have to set our preferences aside. I, it's not about me. But if I wrote a book about the, first thing, the things that I've learned in the first ten years of ministry, one of the chapters would have to be about how preferences of people in the pew dominate the church today. And I've talked about this with you. I love you. I'm not picking on you. But we, we came out of the dark ages where the preferences of some weird dudes in red robes with cute little red hats, their preferences dominated the entire church. And we said no more. But, but we have to be careful in my opinion. And I'm congregational, so I'm not speaking against that. We have to be careful that we don't come into the assembly of the saints and make our own demands on the people of God. This gathering isn't for our glory, it's for His. 
That's part of what the psalmist is pointing at here. Friends, we all endure difficult times. We don't, we aren't called to despair. And, and, it, and living in a day and age where the truth doesn't matter, and, and friends, I'm telling you, the truth is, is constantly compromised in religious Christian circles in America today. It's a hard time to take a stand for truth. It, it just is. But we don't have to despair in our time. We have to put worship rightly back at the center of the gathering of God's people. Anecdotally, in that vein, about 400 years ago, a French priest named Vincent de Paul was traveling by sea, and the ship that he was traveling on was seized by pirates. All of the little boys in the room are now have their curiosity piqued. And this, this priest was eventually sold into the slave trade on the coast of Africa. And there he labored and eventually was sold to an apostate Christian man, an individual who at one time had professed Christ but walked away from the faith really for the things of the world. And... Um, this man bought this priest, this slave, and as he labored in the man's field under the burning sun, he attracted the interest of the, the slave owner's wife. And the slave owner said, slave owner's wife uh, asked this priest, would you sing me one of the songs that you would sing with your people when you were a priest? And he immediately remembered this particular psalm. And kind of, I think, in a way to indict his slave owners, he began to sing, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There he was in his own captivity, his own dilemma. And he sang from the heart. And it touched this woman in such a way that she went back to her husband and she told her husband, she said, I think that what you've done in abandoning the faith that you once held is absolutely wrong. You must listen to this slave and his singing. And what ended up coming of this, to make a long story short, is that the priest was set free so that he could do further ministry. Uh, the, the hearts of these people were convicted that what they had done was wrong. And friends, again... What we need to do in the midst of our Babylon is to sing God's praises in accordance with God's Word. We need to worship in spirit and in truth. And I will say this, and I mean this with kindness. I am so thankful. We have a long way to go, no doubt. But I am so thankful for the ways that I have seen over the past 10 years, our congregation grow in discerning genuine spiritual worship, in genuinely desiring to sing truth above just singing what sounds good to a lost and dying world. I'm thankful that I think, though there are areas where we should challenge one another, we are less guilty of just merely going along with the culture today. I'm thankful and I think that that's a grace of, of God. This psalm, though, ends really 
in a, a terrible imprecation. And, and, and we, have to, we have to consider this. The, the word, remember, occurs three times in the psalm. In verse 1, the poet says that he and the other captors are remembering Zion while they're in Babylon. In verse 6, he pronounces judgment against himself if he doesn't worship in a way that is uh, well-pleasing to God. But now in verse 7, he calls on God to remember as he remembered and to apply an appropriate judgment to the destroyed holy city. He is here asking for the judgment of God. And what he's doing is he's asking for the judgment of Edom, the people who had encouraged the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple. And he's also asking that God would, would pronounce judgment on the Babylonians who had carried out this destruction. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be when he, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Now this all sounds foreign. We're taught Christians are to forgive their enemies. Christians are to not be vindictive, not be violent, not be vicious. And so we come to these words and we, the, the, the temptation of a lot of Bible teachers is to say, well, this is just the Old Testament. I really wish people would stop speaking in those terms. I hate it. Because inside of that, well, that's just the Old Testament, is a latent Martianism. You remember Martian is the heretic that said God was one way in the Old Testament, He's different in the New Testament, so we need to get rid of the Old Testament and just live in the, the New Testament. And friends, I, I want to tell you that as a New Testament believers, verses 8 and 9 belong to you. They just do. And so you say, okay, but they seem really harsh. Well, they do seem really harsh, but here's my question. Have you ever lived in a time where you remember experiencing cruelties like this people experienced? Where their place of worship was desecrated? Where their sons were killed? Where they were sold into slavery? Have you experienced that? Spurgeon wrote, let those who find fault with this, who have never seen their temple burned, their city ruined, their wives ravished, their children slain, they might not perhaps be so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered after this fashion. It is one thing to talk of the bitter feeling which moved captive Israelites in Babylon. And quite another thing, to be captives ourselves under a strange and remorseless power which knew not how to show mercy, but delighted in barbarities to the defenseless. This is a fruit. Psalm 137 is, the, is a fruit of the captivity in Babylon and often has it furnished expression for sorrows which else had been made unutterable. 
The people of God are crying out in this way because they had genuinely received brutality at the hands of these godless people. But we are not people led by our feelings. So what are we left to do with with verses 8 and 9? I want you to consider three things about these words, these imprecations. One, they're words of appeal to God's justice. The psalmist is not here suggesting, God, I'm going to take revenge. Either you do this or I'm going to. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he is appealing to God to do what is right and to judge those who have been so wicked and so cruel in their actions. Derek Kinder paints this picture of there being a judicial background. And in the mind of the psalmist is the brutality of the desecration of the temple of God and the worship of God. And, and that infuriates him in the direction of crying out to God, vindicate your name. And vindicate your people. The divine judge is being here presented, Kinder says, with divine or, or with, with evidence against Edom and against Babylon. And the judgments, secondly, are only what God Himself decrees in other places. There's an entire book. Of, 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 that's de, that speaks of God's judgment against Edom. And it's the book of Obadiah. And the reason for the judgment is precisely what is alluded to in the psalm. That, that Jerusalem fell. Uh, when Jerusalem fell, the, the, the people of Edom didn't mourn, but rather they stood aloof. They rejoiced. They seized their wealth. They handed it over handed over rather survivors to uh, the Babylonian captors. These people were excessive. And Babylon was an excessively cruel people too. I want you to turn in your Bibles tonight to Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 19. And I want you to hear these words. Starting in verse 1. And I'm not here tonight to make an, a, an argument eschatologically other than the judgment of this present world is coming. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God! All you, His servants, you who fear Him, small and great. God's judgments 
are always right. And what the psalmist is doing in verses 8 and 9 is he is appealing to God's sense of judgment knowing that no wrongdoing towards God's name or God's people will ever go unpunished. And in fact, what will happen is God's people will praise Him eternally for having done so. Friends, when we look at verse 9 and we say that's disgusting to us, it should be. The idea of dashing children's heads against the rock should be disgusting. But we live in a culture that doesn't find it disgusting. We live in a culture where where there is a constant litany of people standing in places of authority saying we should have the right to dash the heads of innocent children against the rock. When we look at verses 8 and 9, what we have to see is the just penalty that sinful men deserve. Because men without God gladly do these types of things. And whatever judgment God does pour out on that final day, we will not go, God, that's too much. We will rejoice that His name has been vindicated and that the blood of His saints has been vindicated and that His glory is ever before us. The Edomites, the Babylonians, deserved punishment in accordance with verses 8 and 9. When we look at these verses, we have to see the weight of our, our human sin. And so that begs this question, do we deserve heaven? Do the members of Life Point Baptist Church deserve heaven while the Edomites and the Babylonians and others in the world deserve hell? And Jesus really answers this question when He's asked about the, the death of apparently innocent people in Luke chapter 13. Um, Galileans had been murdered by Roman soldiers and a tower had collapsed on some people who were standing beside it. And, And the question is, was it because these people were worse sinners and everyone else was it because God was was too weak to avert these tragedies or that he didn't just didn't care and Jesus replies in this fashion in Luke chapter 13 do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way and Jesus's answer I tell you no but unless you repent you too will perish Or those 18 who died when the Tower of of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were more guilty than all of the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Beloved, if we genuinely love the lost and dying Babylon around us, our message will not be fill out this card, give some money, pretend to be a good Christian outwardly, that will not be our message. Our message and what we will sing will be repent and believe in so many ways. 
Because that is the only differentiation between the people who will be judged and those who are found under the blood of Christ on the day of wrath. Friends, I hope that this psalm has encouraged you in this way that one, we should never allow our worship to become rote. We should never allow our worship to be something attractional to the lost and dying world. Our worship should be aimed at the glory of Almighty God and the repentance of those who are outside of the kingdom at this moment. We should do all of those things for His glory. Let's pray. Father God, we come to You tonight thankful for this weighty psalm. Thankful for the reminder that... Without your grace, we would all perish. There's not one of us that is less of a sinner than the other. We all need your mercy. We all need your grace. And you have so abundantly and kindly poured that out into our hearts. Help us not to squander it by trying to please people. Help us not to squander Your grace by merely performing something religious, but rather let us be people who know we are bound to be at home with You yet again. And that we want to use all of our giftings, all of our time, all of our talent for Your glory and to call lost sinners to repentance. Help us to be a church that is rooted firmly in Your Word. For your glory. Father, we come to you tonight um, remembering Renee Butts and her family as she mourns the passing of her mom. We ask for special grace.